0: Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I have to thank you and Dr. Lyle and and, and Nemo um, for just allowing me to come and, and to share some of this. I hope it's the beginning of a long relationship because my daughter's just started at Barnard, and I hope to be here a lot. And so even if I don't give formal talks again and create the way we do this, then maybe I can also share with you in other ways. And, and so, Robin was exactly right, and weirdly enough, it was Yo-Yo Ma that started that conversation about how, you know, I, I played in the orchestra, and uh, I music, and I was just, so, well, I, she, she knew you, so how, how is it possible we were both in the same class with Yo-Yo Ma? Well, that's what happened. So, then we figured the rest out. So, what I'm going to do is give you sort of the flyover. So, you know, I feel a little bit, I was saying, this is like cold to Newcastle, and it's a mixed group. Some of you, your life's work or you know, very important stuff in ways that we don't do are now involved with monogenic diabetes. And so I'm not going to really talk about Wolfram, which you know you guys already are doing amazing things. I'm going to give you, though, our maybe our, our stump talk. So the idea is for those of you who know this stuff, this sort of Bustman's holiday, you'll see how we talk to other people. And I think part of the deal is that we need to collaborate in interesting ways because the needle hasn't moved. So the disaster in monogenic diabetes, that ought to be, ought to be the poster child for personal medicine, it isn't. And so, in order to understand how to communicate the notion of individual genetics for any disease, but all of the different diabetes, I think we sh- we should have done a better job here. And you, your your group is also leading the way. But I think what we need to do is figure out how to work together in a better way. So I'll I'll talk about that. And before I, you know, I'm not sure if I can. This is going to work. Let's see. Not so much. We'll just do it this way. So some disclosures, which I think we need to do. So one of the weird things that I'll be talking about is that when my colleagues, Graham Bell and Ken Polanski, sort of discovered these genes, they thought, if this didn't matter. No one's going to be interested. It's such a small backwater. So they licensed them to a company that doesn't exist called Corelogen, which got eaten by another company called Athena, which got eaten by another company called Quest. And, and so there's still weird licensing issues, which ought not to exist. And so that's part of the dilemma here, is getting away from those licensing issues, figuring out how to reduce the cost, and figuring out how to get sort of Joe Doc to be able to understand these tests. Now, Robin is from right here, right? You grew up sort of right here. And so I thought, since many of you have not been to Chicago, this is what we look at. So this is part of Hyde Park, and it goes off to the right. Granville and I weirdly live like two houses apart, right on this part of the map that's six blocks down. Our Diabetes Center, we're talking about sort of the nature of gifts and things, so it doesn't compare here, but this building is only four years old and we're, this is my office right here. So <laughs> we're on the eighth floor and there's about two thirds of the floor is Diabetes Center. I think you, you've the seen board. that building. Yeah. Yep. Place oh, So um, Barry and Michelle uh, live, uh, let's see, just off the edge, let's see, right about here. So there's a, there's a building with a mosque and a minaret, which turns out to be a Jewish uh, a, a temple in the, in the Moorish style, and they live right across the street, so it's not far away. So that's part of that. And, um, and this is our new hospital. I'll show you in a moment. This is the old hospital. This is the main uh, campus of the college. So uh, we're together, the college and the university, which makes for uh, some nice interactions. Had we won the Olympics, they would have been over here. That's a little bit about about the geography, and then so this is the this is the this is the picture of the out my window. So you see what I look at, so now that I know what you look at. So this this just went up. This is our battleship cruiser, um, and uh, each floor is something like a hundred thousand square feet, the size of a you know, Walmart in the middle west. And and you can see here, there's no name. So Robert and I were talking about naming opportunities. So if any of you know anybody. Um, This is a nice place to put a name, and the view out my window is now being obscured. Midway Airport is out here, and this is is due west, right, so south is there. So now they they took away my view, but I'll manage. Alright, so that's a little bit of the background. This is the team. Uh, Some of you know Graham, I guess he was here a couple years ago, and Graham is smiling in this picture, that's important to know. Don Steiner was was sort of my fellowship mentor. Don, you may know, sort of discovered pro-insulin, which is always nice when you talk about somebody in short declarative sentences in terms of what they've done. So Don is still around. Got a new hip this week, but he's still functional. The other key person, Nancy Cox and, and Siri Greenlee, um, who's been awesome and is really coming along, and so part of my job is to grow his career and effort and also Rochelle Naylor, who's another assistant professor now in pediatric endocrinology. So what did I want to do? So the next, I have two hours, I think. So what I wanted to do is sort of give you the whole soup to nuts thing today insofar as I can. So many of this will be quick, although I tend to talk too much. And so how did I do this? So the first part of my career really was in Don Steiner's lab and potassium channels. So I grew up learning about calcium in cells, uh, intracellular calcium regulation, voltage control of membrane potential, a little bit of mitochondrial stuff, and then we also do insulin granule tracking. So that lecture I'd be happy to do next time. But then I met this young lady, and that's really what my life changed. So I wear all these different hats now. So, um, so Lily here was our first kcnj J eleven patient, and really became the poster child. So this is the kind of slide we use to raise money and, and for you know lay audiences and stuff. But it really made a difference. And what was interesting too is the date. I don't know if you can see it back there, but it was Monday, September eleventh, two thousand six. And even in Chicago, that's a bad day. And so we, uh, there was I think a good news story, and that was picked up on nine eleven, and then following year and. After that, they always like to have some feel-good stories then. And so Lily did well, but the idea was that she was born with diabetes, which Siri would like us to call congenital diabetes, not neonatal diabetes. I met her because I was giving a fundraising talk to the JDRF board in Chicago, and we were and Andrew Hattersley, who some of you also know very well at Exeter, just been to Chicago, had told us about his study is about to be published, second paper in the journal, on identifying the KTP channel gene, one of them called KCNJ11, as a, a key site for mutations in this sort of very unusual form of neonatal diabetes, which as an adult endocrinologist, frankly, I had never heard of. I didn't know people could be born with diabetes, but I rapidly learned otherwise, and then giving that talk to the J.D. Ruff and saying, even in diabetes, genetics could be important in type 1 diabetes, or senior in type 1 diabetes. So as what happened, the board member came up to me afterwards and said, I'm Mike Jaffe, and I'm head of major gifts, right? So words we all want to hear. And uh, my daughter had diabetes so essentially one month of age. Well, in fact, she had diabetes probably for one week of age or even one day, and it was some weird thing with her pee. When the run out her diaper, and measured sugar. You know, why you would do that is just not obvious to this day. We don't know why he did that. She was looking well otherwise. But in fact, it was positive, and she started on insulin soon after. And as all of you know, that means that at least one of her parents didn't sleep a night the whole night for, from that for the next six years. And she started an insulin pump. I think she was about four. So when he came up to us, I said, "We can figure this out because we have Graham Bell." So I went back to Graham, and within Graham had already done. I didn't know this, but with Eva Hatue in. Southern California. He had already been involved in one case, knew about it, although hadn't mentioned it to us. So I talked all about this case, and within maybe a week, we had the primers, and sure enough, she had this interesting r 201 c mutation. And she's been out, and as you'll see, this is, I'm not sharing HIPAA violations or anything, but this family has been very amazing in terms of getting the word out. So within a week, we switched her from insulin, and you know, that was a kind of a miracle. And this, again, this is kind of the fundraising talk. So um, the idea, of this was one of the, from the New England Journal paper, which I mean, fundamentally I disagree with. Many of the ideas here, all well, cartoons and models are wrong. They just should be wrong in interesting ways, I think somewhere I've said. But the notion was that this is the, the main, um, the main controller of electrical activity in the beta cell, and weirdly as a fellow, that was my first grant, was to write how to clone this guy, which of course I ended up not doing, but my mentor did, my mentor was sumo Seno, who was in Graham Bell's lab at the time, Susumu so went back first to Chiba and then Kobe, and working sort of parallel with the Bryants, eventually were able to figure out that this was a heterooctamer that uh, controlled membrane potential in the beta cell. So it's not the only thing, but you might say it's necessary but not sufficient for the K2P channel to be regulated indirectly by glucose and, as it turns out, sulfonylurease. So this was that was the main point. We used that, and that was my jumping-off point. Because we had the background of neonatal diabetes. So this is Graham, you know, in a, a different age. And this is our dean, Ken Polanski. And the two of them really had this wonderful thing that's happening here, which is the very close connection between clinical work, as Ken came from Johannesburg. And in you know many countries, there is no college where you learn science. So Ken came out of this intensely clinical environment and then bootstrapped his way into molecular biology. So not unlike you know, people we know. And had this very wonderful relationship with Graham, both because they both ran along the lakefront. So together they had this amazing stretch, started by Steve Fine, who just passed away last year. You can do the math here, it's 90 something. And when I gave Grand Rounds in Michigan a couple years ago, Steve was giving Grand Rounds the next day. So he was still giving Grand Rounds in his 90s. And this was one of his several famous families. He collected these amazing pedigrees. It it takes a right turn here because there are too many people, it's all connected. So the RW pedigree was something that Steve then shared with Graham. So we had this long history of knowing about multiple genes. And so I'll, I will review this again for those of you who are not the, uh, the aficionados of, of uh, monogenic diabetes. So there was this strange background. So here we had uh, uh, so this knowledge of, of what we call MODIS to this day, plus now neonatal, and it became captivating. And when I thought something was one-off and we would never see another lily again, she was not even out of the hospital when we started getting phone calls and emails, you know, what about my kid, what about my kid, and what, what I thought would never happen again became a industry. So in fact, we now have well over 100 ACNJ11 mutation patients. We have quite a few ADCC8, which for some reason is less common, more often associated with neonatal hypo, glycemia, and diabetes. Um, and we have now, finally, after the discovery in the mid-90s, really hundreds of uh, mostly HNF1-alpha, mostly GCK in younger people, and a growing number of 4-alpha patients. And so the important thing there is that in order to understand this, we need more of these cases, and I think there's no single center that's gonna really move the arrow. It turns out these are interesting mutations, and you can't, there is no animal model, and we'll sort of get into that a little bit, but the HNF knockouts either don't have diabetes at all, if they're heterozygous knockouts, which is what the humans are, or if they're complete knockouts, they're lethal. So there's never been a really good model, and even in targeted knockouts, we don't have the same physiology. So other heroes like this guy, so this is a Channel 2 news thing from a couple of years ago. Weirdly, this guy, who will also show his pedigree, um, works for Mike Jeffery, and this is how life is. So he came came and said, look, you know, my boss's daughter, you, you, you really helped out, you figured out she could be treated with pills. But I have this weird diabetes that also, I I was 14, I had sports physical, I peed into a cup, it was positive, I've been on insulin ever since. Sometimes I take insulin, sometimes I don't take insulin. My A1Cs are always like 6 to 7, and nobody can figure it out. Well, he didn't have a family history of diabetes, but he was C peptide positive and he was antibody negative, and I said I would give it a shot. And as you'll see, so he has, in fact, MODE3. And so, how lightning strikes, you know, sort of one extended family. And he's been also very upfront in trying to spread the word, and he also has been off insulin from the day of diagnosis. So what do we want to do? So I am just want to fly through a couple of things. You know, so we have all of these all of these genes which really just scratch the surface. You know, some of your favorite ones are here, you know, the Wolfram one and two, but there's also Wolfram X that you know is I think very interesting. And and then the question of how much of these are different? They have different names. We have sort of different headings. But now I'll talk a little bit today about the insulin gene. So is that really the same as ER stress, or is it a different thing? So I just want to set that out and go through it fairly quickly. Um, And we have a few oddball things here that I'm not even sure what to call them. So the cell, the CEL, which is a lipase in the exocrine pancreas has been associated by um, Paul Nolstead, mostly in Norway, as a kind of modi. But, you know, it's an exocrine pancreas disease. I don't understand that. and So if you can account count that as a modi, you might as well count cystic fibrosis as a modi. And so this is, it broadens your thinking a little bit if you consider it that way. To this day, I don't think we know for sure whether the CFTR affects insulin secretion directly or indirectly, indirectly. And I'm, I'm working with a group in Iowa on that, but it's, it has to do with ferrets, and that's another story. So this is, these are the numbers that we think we understand. So unlike things like Wolfram, it's dominant inheritance. We have this diagnosis. We're trying to understand the numbers because the more we look, the more we find. Um, and what's important are these sorts of things? That there, yeah, there are important treatment implications for the uh, neonatal diabetes, and I don't wanna sort of rain on serious So Hopefully you'll have Siri here. I'm just gonna mention a few of the studies he's managed to do, and they're just awesome and interesting because of the effects in the brain, that this is really, it turns out that neonatal diabetes and KCNJ11 mutations are probably one of the more interesting brain genotype, phenotype correlations that exist, and yet they're still understudied. So what's the highlights? That Mostly we need to look at four genes, and, and this is what we were just talking about in terms of when you go to exome, but these are the four genes that are useful to teach clinically. And so it's astonishing to me that I'm still being asked to do meet-the-professor stuff at the Endocrine Society in the ADA, it, it, the same lectures we could have done in 1998, we're doing now. And the rooms are often full, and so I can't understand that, but somehow genetics is mysterious. So so if you know these few things, you'll be able to identify patients and do important stuff. like. If they have GCK, they don't need any treatment at all. And Andrew Hattersley and our group have been arguing that, in fact, calling it MODI, monogenic diabetes, is a misnomer. It should be kicked out of the Modi thing, and it should be just renamed as something like um, you know, atypical uh, non-progressive hyperglycemia, and leave it at that, because they don't get complications. And yet we constantly get people with GCK mutations who are on four oral agents in insulin and their A1Cs are 6.2 we take them off everything and the A1Cs are 6.2 so that's something to be to be important. so I'm just repeating some of the stuff in the beginning so those are the main things so just to talk about Modi2 the only time that we might treat it is in pregnancy and so now that we have several hundred Modi2 patients we are, Learning more has already been discovered in, in Exeter where I and in a few other countries. It's not the United States. So there's a group in France that has a nice uh, uh, collection. Uh, several years ago, there was a study of 400 patients. Andrew's had, this group just published in JAMA, the lack of progression in Modi, two patients the absence of eye disease, which is a very important uh, thing for the ophthalmologist. These people have stable, as you say, A1Cs of 6.5 to 7.2, even a little bit higher, no eye disease. So just have to sort of think about that. No eye disease. Now, they're thin, by and large, although they're still getting right-shifted as the population shifts. They don't have hypertension. They don't have hyperlipidemia for the most part. So you can have reasonably low elevations in A1c. So there's a lot that we can learn, I think, from additional study of these folks that hasn't been done in the 20 years that we know about them. These are typical pedigrees. All the examples that I'm showing are people that I see. Right, and this is what I was telling Robin when we first met, so now you're seeing them, but they're walking into my clinic, they're certainly walking into your clinic, and everybody's walking. So why aren't we seeing them? It's just you have to open your eyes to, to really Doing this, I say I'm giving you the stump speech. Although I think you're already doing all of this, but, but this one one of these kids was um, an Indian family with the Naperville, um, very bright young man. I think he was, as I say, around eleven here. Mom was uh, had been pregnant. She had been treated for a GDM all over eight, Her BMI was 18, and her son just happened to check his blood sugar one morning. And it was about 124 before breakfast. So they came to our attention. They were both on multiple things. And, um, and 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 by the time one of our previous scholars saw them, of course, then it all came off everything. And this and the other, and he was about to go on uh, an insulin pump at the time, so we averted all of that. And a, a similar situation over here. So when you see, you know, multiple generations, a little bit easier, but there are there is a fair amount of de novo mutations that's useful to understand. The what I think making more interesting progress is what, what you do about these folks. So typically you find that they have progressive diabetes in, in the HNF1-alpha and 4-alpha. However, the beta cells are there. So part of the interesting thing is what works. And so there's very little data on what happens when sulfonylureas fail because at least in HNF1-alpha, in ov 3 sulfonylureas have thought to be actually more potent. So one of the signs of Modi 3 is the patient gets hypoglycemic on small doses of sulfonylurea, And then the doctor says, well, that drug isn't any good. We'll give them metformin. And I said, well, why, why would you do that? Why not give them smaller doses of sulfonylurea and see if that works? So these folks are particularly responsive, at least for a while. MODI one which is HNF-4-alpha, not so much, but still a little bit. But because they're missing these early developmental genes, which are very sort of a, a and in the downstream <coughs> effects, so the issue comes up, how would they respond to GLP-1 agonists? Would there be some other ways of taking a load off? Could they benefit from adding an SGLT-2 inhibitor? So clinically, and then as from a research point of view, in terms of preserving beta, beta cell mass, what, does, what decreases beta cell mass? This is a really an interesting natural laboratory, and essentially that's what I'm selling today, is, is to be sure, we're already doing it in, sort of in stem cells, but I think there's other things that could be done in terms of understanding what the pathophysiology is in the beta cell. In terms of the, of the details, I didn't want to get too granular as they say uh, today, but, but it is interesting. Think about MODY-3, the most common. So the idea is that it is progressive defect. So as the beta cells, as the kids get older, the beta cells poop out. Interestingly, they do really well even through adolescence. You know, we think in type one there's a spike because of the insulin resistance of puberty something I only learned about recently um, as an adult endocrinologist. But, the, but these kids often manage to get through puberty without having diabetes and it shows up in their 20s often, sometime between 18 and 25 years old. That was the original definition. We are seeing people now with the various mutations that are not having, not showing hypoglycemia until their 30s or even 40s. So, there's something interesting about the the ability of the beta cell to compensate that we don't understand. And supporting the beta cell, so called, to use sort of health food jargon, might be a thing that we could do. They have this other thing, a low renal glucose threshold. That's how come my guy showed up in a sports physical. He peed into a cup and had a positive glucose in his urine, but his A1C was still 5. So, in fact, because HNF1 alpha regulates some of the um, glucose transporters in the renal, in the, in the, in the big collecting ducts, that they, they do sort of you know, lead sugar at an earlier stage. This is also, I think, key perhaps for other complications. There, this is a non inflammatory state. So it distinguishes itself from what well, you know, sort of whatever garden variety type 2 diabetes might be because HSCRP levels are extremely low. And there's this idea there's a large increment between fasting and 2 r glucose. So they're able to maintain, many of the folks, there's probably some phenotype type thing we we don't understand, but they're able to maintain sugars for the most part. They do have some HDL effects, and that was known, Ken Polanski was doing that in the 1990s, because HNF1-alpha is present. In fact, I didn't say, it stands for hepatic nuclear factor. So people forget that. It was one of the major liver developmental transcription factors. And one of the downstream targets in the liver is, in fact, uh, many of the cholesterol intermediates. So LDL and HDL are both slightly affected and in interesting ways in these mutations. So some of them have increased HDL, but some of them seem to have LDL. So you you can get very granular on each one, and obviously I'm not going to do that today, but it's extremely interesting. These are three pedigrees that again walked into my clinic. This is our guy who had no family history. And by the way, they were his actual parents, right? So there's always this sort of what we call non-paternity issue. But um, but he, in fact, these were his biological parents. This was another interesting family. You can tell by the pedigree there's something interesting. How did we know all this? This is a Mormon family. And this guy was a lawyer in Chicago who walked into my clinic, and everybody in his family gets diabetes at age 18 with DKA, so it's a very profound diabetes, and the BMIs are all also 18, so it's a confluence of numbers. And what, so sadly, he was sorted it out, but he was really talked to the folks who were still in Salt Lake City. And then he became the um, the uh, Tea Party uh, uh, office director for one of the guys from utah in the senate and i wrote to him and said you know we did so much for you you're off insulin your brother your son you know how about a little diabetes research money and he wrote back to me he said thank you very much for helping my family (laughs) and then then this is a this guy here is a is a faculty member who also is from gujarat and he's in uh, one of the midwestern medical schools he was concerned that even though his bmi was 17 and he exercised strenuously. His blood sugars were going up. His brother had diabetes in his 40s, and his dad died of diabetes. So in fact, they had an HNF1 alpha mutation that has still not been described, so although it certainly seems pathogenic. So, so this is, an, I'll, I wanna just rip through this a little bit, Modi 5 has been less diagnosed in this country. This is, again, what the Hattersley group in Exeter has made a, a big deal about, because this is, it could be diabetes, but it also could be renal cysts. So when you see something that looks Modi-ish, and there may be some early kidney disease, so that's when you have to think about this, and this has, again, other implications, because some people in the same family might have diabetes, others will get, in fact, renal disease to the point of needing a transplant. And so I've mentioned some of this, and I just wanted to, some of this is on, I wanted to do this for other reasons, but now it's not so much, but I think the joy really here is the other family members. So that's a large part of what we're doing is trying to get everybody there. So just to remind you what we're doing and then to get into some of the actual research, it's really these four genes. I want to spend some time on the insulin mutations, since that's part of what I had a role in. I want to talk to you a little bit about 6224 because I think that's a stem cell opportunity that I don't know. Have you already done 6224 with stem cells? So that's an opportunity. We don't understand why these people have diabetes at all. And then, and we already talked about Casey and J eleven, but I wanted to mention some of the brain stuff that Siri is doing. So, um, this you know, this is just taken from Hadzi's paper, but this is our experience that you know that because we've had pediatric endocrinologists tell us, you know, insulin works so well. You know, why would you want to put these kids on an adult drug like a sulfonylurea? It could do stuff. You know, it could make them sick. So, it, so then when my head stops exploding, I right, we, we then took go back to this. They all do better. Nobody has any problems. There are some rare hypoglycemia's in these kids, but it turns out we've had families where the kids where mom gives the dose, dad gives the dose, the kid takes the dose. So they get roughly three times the dose, which is roughly ten times the adult dose, and they do just fine. So it turns out that once you block KTP, it stays blocked. You can't block it any more than blocked. And so this is hard for sort of non-entomologist to grasp sometimes, but it, whatever happens to insulin secretion is downstream of blocking KATD. It depends on glucose, it depends on calcium. So the toxicity of sulfonylureas is, is not really an issue as far as we can tell. I just always enjoy showing this, so I'll show it again. But this is, was our first experience with that very first patient. So every time we do this, it's, uh, it's this thing on the bottom. Basically, this is Lily. She came in uh, soon after, like a, a few days after, we made the, the, the diagnosis in a non-CLIA lab, you understand, right? Did it. And uh, she had she an insulin pump, and we started the sulfonylurea. And in the beginning, you see, things got worse because part of the deal is you have to reduce the insulin in order to sort of have the beta cells try to wake up and be responsive. But so interesting about this disease is that you can think about these beta cells as being a sort of an embryonic rest of tissue of cells. They're not doing anything. And in fact, they're not even doing what they're doing. They have low calcium, they're in the side of a a state of stasis as far as doing what they should be doing. So it takes a few days for them to sort of rev up, I suspect, and start making ribosomes and and everything else that would be involved in making an exopsychotic granule insulin. But finally, by the fifth day of sort of, you know, did she have the ketones, you guys know what you're doing, Um, we were able to get her off stopping insulin, and that's really been the way it's been ever since. But then because of that, other people started coming by. And I'm sure that's happened. It's already been happening to you the last few years. So this is a woman who came into my clinic, and she, she was in her 40s at the time. And she said, my, I have this weird family. I've been to multiple doctors in Chicago. I'm part of the JDRF. No one could figure it out. And she knew. We didn't have antibodies. You know, we're not making sense. but her son had diabetes, her nephew, and now her son has had two daughters. They both, and so at that point, we knew the diagnosis. So I mentioned this to Graham, so we can figure this out. So because it was actually an informative pedigree, Graham did um, basically um, a linkage analysis on one family, which at the time really was not done. And very quickly he found that it was in chromosome 11, and weirdly it was right in the middle of insulin. So this turned out to be a lot of fun, and a big group, we shared it with Andrew, and he had a bunch of cases too. And basically this is insulin. So one of the great joys of giving this part of the lecture is that every you know everybody in diabetes guy likes to talk about insulin, at least at some part. And since I grew up with Don Steiner, this was also part of my, my background. So it turns out that their um, mutation was right here somewhere, I think what was, I was the eighth position. And so we started rethinking about insulin. We ran back to Don and we said, you know, what's up with that? Um, he he was then, of course, delighted, so a large, large part of this changed. So here was, I think, the very first mutation, and there was a few others. Actually, no, that was not. These are the mutations that were known early for. So there were mutations in insulin that were known in the 80s, and some of them were curiosities caused hyperprolactinemia. If there was a mutation at the splice junctions where the C-peptides came out, But none of them really caused diabetes until this family that we uncovered and so since then it's gotten very interesting so our family was let's see one of these guys and then all of the black ones are now neonatal diabetes and then you see there's other stuff so there's even modi so people who somehow don't get diabetes very early there are recessive forms and there's rare variants that are coming up in some of the T2 genes and much, many more than we suspected. Some of them are synonymous, so they're just completely silent. And then the old ones that we knew about, that either because hyperproinsulinemia or hyper-insulinemia, but not diabetes. And I think this one, is the, this is the most recent update, which includes some of the T2 gene variants. So this, has become, this is just new. I mean, so we nobody really thought about insulin mutations causing diabetes before what they do, and it made sense. Graham always said, you know, if you had a mutation that didn't didn't do anything else that caused diabetes, it might as well be an insulin. There'd be no syndrome other than diabetes, we think. So this has been fun, and part of, I'm not gonna go into it, but part of what we've done since then is describe several animal models. We have a zebrafish model, there's, there's in fact, natural mouse models. I don't know if you have the Akita mice here, but in fact, the Akita is uh, this mutation. There's also the Munich mouse, which is another mutation right here. So these are very interesting in terms of, is this in fact ER stress? Is it simply backup? The unfolded protein response is turning things off. Uh, There are notions that using the same drugs that you might use for Wolfram may also work for these folks. But are the beta cells dead? So we've certainly had some experiments, which I'll come back next time and show you, where treating the Akita's, they with an islet transplant, causes a huge improvement in the endogenous Akita islet. So basically taking a load off and decreasing biosynthesis has a dramatic positive effect on islet structure. Probably not function, but at least how they look.
1: So I think there's a lot of stuff
0: to mine here yet and we've only really been scratching the surface. Graham, I think, has spoken a lot about moving some of these mutations into the eye of the Drosophila. And that's been extremely interesting because putting that mutation on about 30 different Drosophila backgrounds shows the effective evolution, really, on handling ER stress and misfolded proteins. Because some of the flies have almost no damage in the eye, some of them have an eye that almost disappears. So the same mutation in insulin expressed in the eye of Drosophila, different Drosophila genetic backgrounds can handle that defect to different extents. And so let me just give you, yes. Eisenbarth's model for the development of one diabetes includes the instruction of the immune system early on right. not to assault insulin. So you would predict that these guys would be, giving them insulin, for example, would be a, not a great thing for them sense that they would recognize it as they would make antibodies against it and destroy their beta cells. Well, up to a point. So we thought about that a lot. But then when we had two kids that we could follow as they develop diabetes, they they continue to make insulin well into the second year of life. So it's probably long enough to instruct the thymus. But that experiment hasn't been done. We thought about doing islet transplants in the older folks. For a variety of reasons, they're, they're, these are, in general, not the best controlled people with diabetes. So that just that has, hasn't been done. No one's looked in detail at the T-cell subsets or whether they respond or not, but that's exactly something that we've thought about. If we could get more patients and have a study, that would be something useful to do. And that, I don't think, has been looked at in the mice either, but it's a different problem. They are dominant and all heterozygous. So I'll show you. They normal insulin. They should, they should. But what, so again, that, that's the point is that. I don't think the immune system is recommended. They don't have antibodies to insulin with what we looked at. So the idea is that having one bad insulin is enough to shut down the island completely. So whether they die, which I think seems likely of you know, sort of the mother of all unfolded protein responses, so that's another part of the lecture, that I'm not going to do today, but keep in mind that insulin can be as much as 50% of the protein in the beta cell, sort of as it ramps up to become low high glucose so There's a huge uh, production of insulin. So even if half the genes are defective, that you know that's sort of the end of the game. Right. I mean the reason I'm saying that there should be no reason that these people would have the ultimate towards the normal. Well it might knock well. off the cells in the thymus when they were trying to construct the immune system by the same mechanism that they would kill the beta cells once they were formed. We thought about that. I mean the other experiment would be to have an absolute knockout. So nothing from birth or even from early development, having no insulin gene at all. So that experiment's also being done by nature, but they're less they're even more rare. So but you're right, I mean the kids they, they, they do express insulin for that, at least that first year, and, and so they see that. Now this is, I just want to show you a couple more families. So so this was um, a family that was interesting. This also was outside of uh, Utah, this family. So I didn't, this is not one that I saw myself, but we were uh, early on, that uh, led into this sort of very interesting pedigree with four generations, several died of DKA in, in childhood. And what, so this is, Mike Swinyard. is, again, one of those pediatric endocrinologists in the community who just finds this stuff. And I I can't believe that he's, you know, a lightning rod. I mean, just, he has his eyes open out there. And this is what he wrote to us. He said, so after he sent us one patient with KCNJ11 that we were able to help and and switch to uh, to pills, said I have another family, an unrelated family, she was diagnosed at age two months and and, and had been on insulin pump speech delay, and unlike the other patient, she had this remarkable, because the other patient, as most of the KCMJ11s are de novo mutations. So this one had this very interesting pedigree, father, paternal, grandfather, and so on. So what um, Graham did was he put Nancy Cox and Piper Bellow on the case. Piper was a fellow with Nancy at the time. They repeated the linkage, and it kept coming up insulin, even though we couldn't find any coding abnormality in the insulin gene. And then, as we were spending four years working on this, uh, this family also then was caught up in a search study. So that made us crazy. One day, the search people called us and asked for the mutation. We said, you know, we haven't published it. So, but meanwhile, we read about it. So two different groups, the Hattersley group and another group in Spain uh, had a similar story. And the idea, this was the first splice site mutation. So it's a minus. I forget now exactly minus, it's an intron two, it's about minus 20 or or plus 20 into the intron. So creating a a new splice site, also then creating an abnormal insulin. So these are still uh, dominant mutations. So this was kind of a new idea and it's become the, um, probably the second most common cause of of all of the insulin mutations. So not coding mutations, but splice-site mutations. And there's a lesson there, too, that unless, unless you look into the introns, you're gonna be missing mutations in known genes. So that's a very important point for the people who might be thinking about exome sequencing, is you're not gonna get all the mutations that way. This is another example that's not yet published, I don't think. So Sue and working with Don, the rest of us, another patient, had another interesting, you see here a splice-site mutation. So instead of making insulin, which is the the coding regions of B-chain, C-peptide, A-chain, there's a mutation here, which was predicted to give this and then X is sort of a a random junky protein, which we think also is part of the mother of ER stress, much like the akina mutation. So in this case, though, there is something that's secreted, although we haven't been able to find an antibody yet to actually measure this stuff. And there is this, again, variable age of expression of diabetes that's very interesting. So the insulin story continues to be interesting. These are some of the points. Some goes back twenty, back to the 1980s when some of the first insulin mutations were described. But she just walked into my clinic. I mean, that's all that this whole rest of the story really, somebody would have found it eventually, but that was what was interesting. Now, for exome sequencing, you know what we've tried to do is look at some of the unknowns as well, working with, um, uh, with some of Graham's friends, um, Craig Hannes and others in the Southwest. And so what we find is that it's mostly stuff we already knew, but in different guises. So several young people with, with what we thought was atypical diabetes, so very early onset, turned out to have um, this thing called ipex syndrome which again adult endocrinologists i never heard of ipex syndrome usually the kids die before the age of six or so of uh, graft versus host disease or um, or chronic diarrhea failure to thrive but occasionally they survive and so that becomes interesting and so we found several now so there's a new kind of genetic heterogeneity of ipex with fox 3 mutations that you can find do exome sequencing is something you should have thought of beforehand if your eyes were open. And then others are late-onset KCNJ11 mutations. So we see some of those that look like Modi. RFA6 was described by Mike German and the group in Montreal as another kind of early-onset, but very very syndromic. You wouldn't miss this because they have annular pancreas, neuronal atresia, and other stuff. So this is a transcription factor that's early on. And then we're finding a bunch of the EIF2AK3, the walcott rollison which, again, adult endocrinologists don't even think about. And so these oftentimes, when well, they have bone disease, they don't think about the diabetes, but oftentimes diabetes is the initial presentation. They haven't had any bone studies yet, and it takes exome sequencing to find out what a good clinician would have seen eventually anyhow. So this is our experience. No new genes recently, because the insulin gene was a big deal, but um, we're finding more of this unusual uh, manifestations of stuff that we know about, mutations in known genes that could be an intron, and I was telling Robin on my clinic on Monday I had uh, two patients with MODI one so that's so I have now enough patients at my old genetics clinic, they both have mutations in HNF4-alpha that have never been published so that's, uh, that. we're still finding a lot uh, of information there um, that I think is very, very interesting and important to treat I'm just going to mention a couple of things and then I'm going to stop and then I have another 30 slides which I can come back next time. So that was the whole idea of getting just giving you a taste. I wanted to mention a little bit about 6Q24 because that is, I think, an opportunity that we don't really understand what's happening. So, so these are two imprinted genes. These kids are very profoundly affected. They are usually the smallest babies. So they're, you know, two kilo or one point eight kilo babies. And they get diabetes, and then, in half of them, it goes away. So how often do you see someone and say, you know, did you have diabetes in infant, and then it went away and not came back? I mean, does that happen? So, but it does, and it typically comes back during that insulin resistance of puberty, and the question then is, what do you do? So I'm going to skip this one, and I want to talk about barriers, but I wanted to, let's, I'm just going to go right to the next. This is our... Uh, patient advocacy part, but here's the 6Q24 part. So they tend to be small, Diabetes these develops within weeks of age often, goes away, and it's the mom who actually does all this. So typically in the, there are some J 11 mutations that are also transient, and mom just kind of weans the kid, it doesn't need so much insulin. So she reduces it, the and then the kid's off insulin. And so that's what happens over here. Um, if then the relapse is gonna be variable, and we just don't know, what all that means. It looks like it could be a gain of function in terms of what's methylated and what's silenced, but we don't understand that. Um, and then we don't, sort of a clinical point of view, they were all being treated with insulin, all, I mean, you know, a very small number of cases. So what Siri has been doing is to see whether we can get them off insulin. This is an example of some of that, and I'm just gonna hit the highlights and hopefully it'll detail, but you see agent recurrence from anywhere from 12 to 27 years, and then once we get a hold of them and we try other stuff, we try glyburide, we try a DPP-4 inhibitor, if they're a little fluffy, we might add metformin, and, uh, and then maybe even um, a uh, long-acting GLP-1 agonist if possible. And by and large, we get very, so here's a C-peptide test with and without sulfonylureas in such a 60-24 young adult. And by and large, you get very impressive changes. And we have, in fact, been able to get them off insulin that way. So I'm going to wrap up with a couple of other ideas. One is that it's cost effective. Part of what the group in Maryland just got a grant about through through a genetics translational study section, which was surprising to us, is getting to the people in the Maryland, Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland area, to see why providers are not covering genetic testing. Because it's basically insane, right? If you can take somebody off insulin, and so you can can do the math, and in fact, Rochelle and Dave Carmody and Priya John, working with Albert Wong, have done the math, and this is the math. So this is stuff that I don't quite understand. This stands for Intimental Cost-Effectiveness Ratio, and these are qualities which is supposed to be another good thing if you're measuring outcomes. If you can do this with neonatal diabetes, the people, the quality people, have a graph of four quadrants. And neonatal diabetes treatment with sulfonylureas is off the charts. There is no other example of such a big win in terms of cost effectiveness over a lifetime. MODI is a little bit more complicated because they're adults, there's insulin. Um, and the pickup rate is a little bit different. So what they did here is to show that if you're down in this area, you become cost-savings, cost-effective on the $50,000 mark, and then even cost savings down the road. So, and then the other main variable is the cost of the test, strangely enough. So if the test costs, I don't know, $1,200 per gene, right, an insane amount of money right now, which is the standard in in the field, uh, it's not very cost-effective depending on how many you screen. If you raise the prevalence, it becomes cost-effective, even at $7,000 for a so-called pound. And I think I'm, there's a few other things, I'm just, I'm going to, well, I had a bunch of things I could have said, I want to skip to the end. So so this was, you know, we think that all the laws should be, that there should be no more licensing of these things, and certainly Quest is doing BRCA1 and BRCA2. They don't seem to care that they don't have the patent license on that as to myriad. So, but we're stuck in this in this place. We are trying to get the word out, as are you. We, we developed a panel through our clear-centered lab that now has about a 42-gene panel based on the Lumina assay, and we think we can do those 42 genes. The cost is around $500 to $800 per run. So, you know... Price at a clinic could be as much as $2,000 for a clear-based test. But that is what I think the field is going to, and if we can then get the word out that that's available, we'll be in good shape. So this is our sort of reimagining of diabetes, neonatal diabetes, know, it's obviously not to scale in terms of incidence. Neonatal diabetes down here, glucokinase mutations get their own list. These are mostly dominant, but I suppose you could put didn't make a thing for recessive or mitochondrial mutations, but that could go here. And then type 1 diabetes or immune diabetes. And then over here is what we call idiopathic hyperglycemia, to quote Edwin Gale, otherwise known as type 2 diabetes. (laughs) So Mike, there's one more thing. This is Kevin. Kevin came to me maybe last month, flew in from Oklahoma. He's a pastor in a small town. His doctor in Oklahoma City actually did the sequencing and showed that he had an HNF1 alpha mutation. And so, for reasons I don't understand, she decided to increase the insulin. She's a big guy. He's like 6'4, and he gained another 60 pounds as he went from insulin injections to four insulin injections to an insulin pump. He stopped running, he stopped exercising, he's a nasty, he a phrase, and hypoglycemic during, during his speech. So, he flew in, and as you might see such people too. And uh, what we did was we turned off the insulin and increased his oral agents. And now, um, within a week, he had stopped his insulin he's lost 30 pounds in a month and uh, runs and back together so it's a question just making the diagnosis and understanding what to do and i'll just end with this so this is the jaffies this is let's see lily is here and uh they've made a movie so this hopefully will be on public television in new york sometime soon enough. picked up by wttw in chicago and it's a little light on the science. It isn't ANOVA, but it is a discussion of the discovery of KTP channel mutations. There's what beautiful pictures of Andrew Hannesley striding across the moor with his dogs, and some wonderful images of uh, Fran Ashcroft from Oxford, and a little bit of us. So, um, so I think. All of this stuff is fun because we are pushing the needle a little bit. So without Lily's family and some of the other kids that wouldn't have started, this is Fran, our other colleagues, Susan Sano, who uh, continues to work with us closely in the group at Exeter, mostly Andrew and Son LR. So I'm going to stop there. If there's questions, time, I'll do that. But thank you for listening. Actually, I think we have time for a couple of questions. Yes. Hi. Um, can you talk about using and they more on So we so of course we thought about it and I've even proposed to um, ask that they give us lots of money to do that. Um, and they're, they're actually intrigued you know, whether that would be something. But so far have we even done it once? Uh, I don't think so. So you know, we try to go with what's a little bit more in the end. If you used SGLT2s clinically, you know that in men who get even one joint infection, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame game for them. The guys just don't handle that well. So, so we've been a little bit cautious about moving to SGLT2s, but it, it would be interesting to see how So I'm not entirely sure I, I got, I mean, the idea of GLP-1s, that they probably work downstream of the calcium, right? So they increase cyclic uh-huh. the A. So not so much. So I think, you know, what Andrew showed, even in that 2006 paper, was that GLP-1 levels were about normal, and so their secretion was to be okay. And they would augment downstream activity. But most of the people with KCNJ11 mutations respond to so The ones that respond respond. The few, the few that don't, the channel is locked open, and so the GOP one wouldn't do anything beyond that. We're using them in the other folks with, so that may not respond to self-improvement. I have a question about the uh, MoDI-2 patients So we have a lot of experience on, this, so not 1,000 patients. Do you well, we don't have 1,000 MoDI-2s. <laughs> do you think the, the microvascular complications, which we find to be rare but not non-existent, is in any way not related to the A and C? So that is do you think there's anything special about a Modi two patient whose A1C is 7 and a half? They're not protected against complications. Well the question is why do you get complications? I mean so the, the paper that Andrews Group just published in JAMA a few months ago looked at several hundred glucokinase patients and there was one one patient with, uh, with eye disease. But nobody that, else. That rate of A1C, that's about right. In that number of well up to about 7.2 and this is lifelong so that's the So see in the dcct well but they got diabetes at age 10 12 these are people from birth so it's a little different so you have to add <coughs> 12 years to everybody's age and then factor that out so i, I think mm-hmm. it's well, are they protected? So on the one hand, yes, it relates to that the curve of A one C against an obligation A see Anybody, I think that it also there's another level of protection because of the general health that they that they have uh, the rest of the time. So I think if you have more patients with complications, that is publishable, and you, I mean, because it may be that the demographics are different, um, so they're not necessarily. I don't know. I don't know where in Andrew's paper, it was all people from you know, surrounding Exeter or, or all white people from England. And so it may be that if, if, if there are people who are heavier, so this is what we talked about in the right shift in the BMI, and this is what something Steve Fiennes was worried about, that you have other mutations that might be silent that are now coming out because the BMI is 31. So if you have a glucokinase patient with a high BMI, they may need treatment, and that's interesting. So that hasn't been looked at in a detailed way. And then a the follow-up to that is we have a lot of patients who have been through pregnancy, and a lot of patients who report, this, maybe this is just New York, there's a very highly educated, informed patient population, they feel they had poor control with their sulfonylurea, and some hypoglycemia, they loved being on insulin. And you can't get them off the insulin, most part. Yeah, so that's hard. So I think from looking at at Andrew's data and the group in Paris and our own, the only treatment that works in pregnancy Glucokinase mutations is insulin. And you have to use lots of it. Because the, the insulin level is level, levels go down. Remember, there's a push-pull in glucokinase mutations. So not only is it a beta cell defect, but it's a liver defect. And I the, the defects are opposite. So the liver is making more sugar, and the beta cells are making less insulin. So because of the glucokinase regulation of glycogen, glycogen synthase, and glycogen rysis, and glycogen storage. So you have both of those things. So in order to suppress both of them, we need lots of insulin and pregnancy. Now, leading them off insulin, they, I mean, they should be, a, you would think they'd be happy, okay. but I have people who are runners, for example, and their A1Cs are 7.2 and it just pisses them off. Yes, absolutely. And, and so they say, I admit metformin, and they still put I need insulin because I want my A1C to be five. Well, I would want my A1C to be 6.5. Well, but it turns out it just doesn't matter between 6.5 sure. and 7.2. So that well, that's why we need to combine our patients so if you look at the and so we have we don't have a a, a, a prospective study, we said we have slice of life, but we have people of all ages and they're just doing okay. In pregnancy though, you have this other issue of a small baby or a large baby, depending on who has the mutation, and mom and the child or both, and so that that is a, a different level of difficulty. So do you do testing? We that question comes up every couple of months here. So do you well, The testing is, is ultrasound. So so if so if the baby is small or large, you can tell that early on. You know, can you do anything about it? Or before that you just so sometimes with the moms, we may not aim for a tiny fasting culture, but maybe it's slightly remissive. I'm not sure there's data of that. I just want well there's no data. So we would we would have to go with the ophthalmolog with the obstetricians on whatever their craziness is and, and go with that. <laughs> But the, the ultrasound determines, you can predict that the baby has a or not. But that's only MODI-2, so MODI-1, MODI-3, different story, and I would treat them as if they had type 2 diabetes. Right, which we do, except for the MODI-2s so who that question. Yeah, so... Until we have yeah. ultrasound and we know what going to do. Right, so, so, you know, you're, you're, you may have more experience than we do, but our approach is that uh, we treat with insulin, we treat, you know, fairly religiously, we try to you know, those 140 and other weird numbers that only people use, and you we know, hope for the best. We think, though, that because they don't have everything else, there's a sort of you know, low insulin resistance, usually, and low inflammatory state, and lipids, and all of that, that they're going to be better. Mm-hmm. But there isn't a lot of data. Thank you very much.